sometime, uh, I don't know, was it 12, 13, 14 years ago, somewhere in there, uh, my wife and I moved from the east to the west, um, specifically to Denver. We had been um, up to that point living in a small town in Maine of about 3,500 people. We spent a few months living in my parents' house uh, between things and then uh, moved to Denver. We drove with all of our stuff in a SUV and a trailer that we about killed ourselves in on the way out and finished the drive relatively early on whatever day of the week it was, driving into Denver. And I remember coming off I-70, you get onto 470, which goes around the south side of the city. And there's a moment in that trip where suddenly you can see everything. Now, if you guys are familiar with that area, you're familiar with that view, you know what I'm talking about. Because what you see, I mean, you can see everything from the, the furthest south side of Denver, Highlands Ranch um, and uh, Parker and all of that, all the way up to the north side, Commerce City. Uh, you got the skyscrapers in the middle, and then you have these mountains, just huge and awesome, okay? I remember we were driving in, and maybe it's because we had almost died the day before, um, and maybe it's because we were from a, a small town, um, but there was, I was overwhelmed. I mean, it was like, what did we get ourselves into? Because just so you know, like, we both grew up in towns closer to the size of Lahana, right? And we had lived in Maine in a small town, and then we're like, Denver, right? And it's just spread out. And I remember being just in wonder at, like, how could so many people live in one place? And then kind of a worry, an overwhelmedness in seeing the size of it. It was stunning. And I thought, man, this is going to be an adventure. Have you ever had a time in your life when you found yourself both in that, like, anxious wonder, right? Where you found yourself thinking, whoa, there's something big going on here. By the time of the writing of Psalm 48, which is where we're going to be today, the city of Jerusalem was one that inspired the mind, warmed the heart, and would bring any visitor coming in to think on the grandeur of all that was before them. And that was by design. See, a city like the city of Jerusalem was meant to be a place that pointed the people up to God. Much like the Gothic cathedrals that we can picture that, that places bigger than Lahana have for their Catholic church, right? Much like the, the magnificent, almost castle-like churches of, of Europe that are meant to point you up to God. That are meant to show us how big God is. And there are moments in this church, by the way, where I wonder if the architect who worked on this place had a little bit of that still in him, right? We are the only domed Baptist church I know of in the world, okay? Like, Baptists don't have domes, 
in their churches. We do. And it's good. What it does is it makes my voice really loud. For some of you, that's annoying. But it also means that we can hear the quiet in this room as well. In fact, you can do this. If you ever are standing there and you have someone standing there, you can actually whisper to each other. It's pretty cool. Okay? The psalm does this same thing. It takes us and it starts us here. And it launches us upward. And it does so with the image of the city of Jerusalem. So I want to read this for us and then we will uh, we'll continue our time. So we're in Psalm 48. Psalm 48. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Before I read this next part, I just want to say, if you are someone who is struggling right now, I want you to really listen to verses 4 through 8. It says, For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there in anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Um, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Verse 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever will guide us. He will guide us forever. Now, I want to say real quick, if you've got an ESV, um, the title of this psalm, I think, is actually misleading. And I don't know what it is in some of the other Bible translations you may have. But in the ESV, it says this, Zion, the city of our God. Right? And at first glance, I want to say that that's kind of what this psalm is about. And yet, I think it misleads us to aim our worship in slightly the wrong place. Because this song is not about strictly about the city of Jerusalem, this song is about God. This song is about the one who resides in Jerusalem, the one who has made his home in Jerusalem. And if we're going to use this psalm today to lead us in our praise and on our worship to the glory of God in our own lives, in our church together, and in the world on mission. Hear that, right? We, we start here in our hearts, we do this together, and then we take the message to the world. If we're going to do that well, then, then what we need to do is see this psalm coming in as they would have seen it. Because for the nation of Israel, the people of God, everything that Jerusalem was, was the center of their lives. It was the center. It was the center of their political 
It was the center of their religious. It was center of their economic life. They had Jerusalem. People of Lana, we have Walmart. Okay? The center of our lives in this town is what? It's Walmart, right? Well, for them, it was the whole city of Jerusalem where everything began and ended and started, came out of and went into. It sounds a lot like Walmart to me. Theirs was a lot more glorious than ours. So what you need to know is that at the time that this song was written, Jerusalem was a glorious and beautiful city, magnificent and inspiring. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. In verses 4 through 9, we see that the whole city is a challenge to its enemies. No matter what enemies come, what you see is they are astounded. They're bewildered. They're beaten. In verses 10 through 14, it tells us that this city is a beauty to its inhabitants. Right? They think about this city. It is the most important thing in their lives. That's at the time of the writing of this psalm. But Jerusalem had not always been that way. Before David became king and set up his house in the city of Jerusalem, that, that city was nothing. It was an unconquered backwater village of a group of people who, who the only reason they weren't kicked out of the city as, as Israel came in to, to conquer everything is because it was situated in a real good spot in the mountains. And it was small enough that nobody cared about it. So what happened is David came in, and realizing the strategic location that it was, he conquered it, and he made it his. And in doing so, God made the choice to take a backwater, backwoods, town and make it the center of the world. That's what happens when God moves in. When God moves into a place, it doesn't matter what it has been. What only matters now is what he's making it to be. Jerusalem was a special place. But not because of what it was, but because of what God would do in it and through it. It became special because this is where God chose to live. Hear that. It wasn't special before. It wasn't. But when God moved in, it became special. Now this is not the way uh, humanity works, just so you know. Uh, with, with human lives and with our influence, things we, we do, um, what we do is we find a special place and then we go there and, and, and tr you know, try to like gain that specialness. So here's just a quick il illustration of this. The White House is a special place, right? The White House is capable of changing a businessman or a community organizer into the President of the United States of America. Wow, right? That's pretty powerful when you think about it, that it can take someone such as has led our nation these many years and make them into something else. But here's what I would like you to picture. What if for a moment 
a future president of the United States said, you know what, we are not going to have the Capitol be in Washington, D.C. It's going to be in Los Animas, Colorado. What would happen, first of all, to Los Animas, and then second of all, to the rest of the valley, if that took place? It would never be the same, right? I mean, the moment that happened, there'd be buildings getting torn down and others being built up. There'd be people in mass in crowds coming in and moving here, buying all the land. It would be great for our real estate prices. Okay, they'd probably build an airport somewhere between here and there so that all the important people could come in and out. See, this is what happens when God moves into a city. It changes everything. That's what it would be like. So friends, here's what I want you to hear. In the city of Jerusalem, God moved in. God moved in, and it changed everything. Here's what it says. Just verses 1 through 2. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all of the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Verse 3, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. God did this. God did this. And this is the way God works, friends. God chooses the backwater, backwoods people of this world and does great things with them. As you trace the nation of Israel, he started with one insignificant man and chose him to become something special. In Deuteronomy 7, 7, the scripture tells us that just as he chose Israel because they were small and insignificant, excuse me, small and insignificant, nothing special, and he chose to dwell amongst them and make them into something special. And as it was for them, so it is with us. Because God works this way. And so God came to us in Christ. He came and he lived amongst us for a season. And as you read the scriptures and you study Jesus and you look at what he did and, and who he was, what you see is that where he went, he changed those around him. And then he left. And what did he do? He sent his spirit to dwell, to live in you and I. So that we too, like the city of Jerusalem, could be made new. Could be made into something special, something better and wonderful. Christ does that when he moves in to the neighborhood. Christ does that when he moves into our hearts and into our lives. And we will not be left the same. So first, Christ indwelt with humanity, and then he indwelt in humanity by the Holy Spirit. Friends, here's what you need to know. We become what the city of Jerusalem was to the world. We become what those Gothic cathedrals were meant to do and be, to point people to something greater, bigger, And that's what we see here. You know, that's also why we worship the way we worship in a lot of ways. 
See, us Protestants, we're a little different than the Catholics. Uh, we usually prefer simpler things, humbler things. We prefer to focus our hearts and our minds instead of on the architecture that might point you to God, on his word, on preaching the word, the truth of God, and in joining together and singing common songs. There's an order to it. There's a reason for it, for why we do what we do. It's meant to bring us closer to those for whom Christ is living inside each other. That we might point each other to God. Amen? At the end of verse 3, it tells us that God is a fortress. And I love the way it does this. Here's what it says. It says, within our citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. A fortress. Now, this is not uncommon language in the Psalms. We see that all over the place. In fact, I think we saw it a couple weeks ago. We're going to see it again next week. Um, the fortress is the image of what God is in the city. A fortress. Now, what is a fortress? A, force is, a fortress is ultimately a place of, of ultimate protection. It's the strongest part of the city. And this is what made Jerusalem so special. Friends, it's also what will make us special. If our fortress is Christ, the strongest part of us, the most prominent part of us is Christ. See, it wasn't Jerusalem's booming economy that protected the city. It wasn't its art, its music. It wasn't its rich religious life. The temple there, it was the indwelling of the Spirit of God in that place that made it special, that protected it. And this presence was there by God's choice. I love it. It says, He has made, God has made Himself known as a fortress. Now that doesn't take us out of it, right? We don't lose the, uh, the need to make Him our fortress, but that's the focus of another day. Because what we have here is it tells us that God is the one who makes, uh, makes the fortress in the city. He's the one that puts it there, establishes it. He's the one that makes it happen. And friends, if you're here today, I pray and I hope that you would either be someone who already has Christ as a fortress in your life, or I pray that, that today would be the day he becomes that for you. God makes himself the fortress. And that forces us to ask a question, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to answer the question today. I pray Scott will next week. What do you trust in for protection? What do you trust in for protection? Next week, Scott's going to look at that a little more carefully. What I want to just say today, as far as our message and this passage goes, is that we don't get into the specifics. What we get into is the size of the protection. All right, we, we need to focus in on, on how big this fortress is or is supposed to be in our lives. Now, when you think of a castle, you think of a, of a, of a walled city, maybe from the, 
the, um, you know, the Dark Ages or medieval times, or you think all the way back to this time period, what you might picture um, as you approach a city is, first of all, the outlying area, right? There's, there's the place where, and let's be honest, the poor people live, right? They're outside of the protection of the walls. They don't have great houses. Um, you know, it, if it was modern times, they, they threw their shanties up with pieces of scrap metal and whatever wood they could find. Now going through that, you, you know, get nicer and nicer as you go in, and then you get to the walls that, that ultimately protect the city itself, big gates, areas to shoot arrows down from, all this stuff. And then you go through and you've got, got nice businesses and residential areas, and somewhere on the inside of all of this, there's probably a temple or the church, because that's where it would be located, protected in the middle. Uh, but then you also have a fortress. And really what a fortress is in that thinking is the last place of protection for a city. The last place, right? When the walls have crumbled, when the armies have destroyed the shanty town on the outside, when they have begun to burn and pillage through the shops and the residences. Everybody flees, including the last of the soldiers. They flee to the fortress where there's provisions, water, food. You know, it's not comfortable, but they can stay there for a while. That's the fortress, right? It's the last place of protection. Not in the city of Jerusalem. See, in the city of Jerusalem, the fortress is bigger than all that. For the people of God, the fortress is not allowed to be the last line of defense. It's the first. It's the place that you go when trouble starts, not when you can no longer handle it yourself. The fortress is massive. It encompasses everything. For the people of God, when he is our fortress, he should not be our last line. He should not be where we go when our energy is depleted, our resources are gone, and we're falling over exhausted. He should be the place we go first and every single day. Before the trouble even begins, we live in the fortress. That way when the enemy comes knocking, we're like, hey buddy, I'm good, right? Because we are already there. It's not the place we go when the resources run out. When the money runs out, the time runs out, the energy runs out, the friends or family that we have run out, or when our health fails. It's not the place of last, it's the place of first. And here's the deal, I want to tell you this, and this probably doesn't apply to all of us, but I know it applies to me some of the time, and so maybe it applies to you too. I feel like a lot of us are running around on our own by our own strength, our own power, from one crisis to another, right? It's one problem to another, and we just feel like we're like ping-pong paddles or bouncing back and forth from one thing to another. One problem, one challenge, and it's only upon running out of our own that we turn to God. It's like we came to Christ as a bunch of broken cars, and we accepted the fix-up on the outside, right? We, we accepted the, the new paint job. We accepted the, the new windows where they were broken. 
But when it came time for, for God to take the motor and put a new battery in and all this stuff, what we did, we're like, no, we're, we're good. And so what happens now is, is we just kind of are rolling around and, and periodically our battery runs out and we're like, Jesus, could you jump me? Just to get me to my next place. I just need to jump so I can get to work. I just need to jump so I can pick up my kids from school. Meanwhile, Jesus is standing there with a new motor and a new battery. And he's like, people, if you take these, you won't run out. Your car won't break down. Is that you? I mean, are you someone who constantly needs a jump start from Jesus? Or are you someone for whom he has replaced all the inner workings? I'm not a car guy, okay? I'm not. You guys, I think most of you know that. I wouldn't know how to rebuild an engine. But I know a lot about human hearts. And I know about mine. And I know that we have this tendency to do this very thing. Is Jesus your jump start or is Jesus your constant? Is Jesus your fortress over all your life or is he just that, that place you recede to when you run out of your own energy? We sang a song today, uh, yet not I, but Christ in me. As we continue our way through this psalm, what we see is what happens to the city of Jerusalem because God lives there. And here's, we're going to move through this, I think, fairly quickly, but I want to point out a few things to us. Because maybe this describes you today, or maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I want you to think about your life, and I want you to think about whether or not this sounds good to you. When Christ is our fortress, when he dwells in our hearts, he lives here in us, there's some things that happen for us. Verses 4 through 8. What we see here is the city of Jerusalem becomes formidable. Formidable. That's a big word we don't use a lot. I love this word, though. It becomes formidable. Let's read this real quick. Verses 4 through 8. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, saw it is, as soon as they saw the city, like when I drove around the highway and suddenly I could see all of Denver, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Verse 6, trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you, that's God, shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Where God dwells, he makes them formidable. Now, I can, you can think about this individually, right? Um, because when Christ lives in our hearts, I want to tell you, I think we should become this. We should be formidable. Our enemies should come for us, and we should, they should be like, eh, maybe not today. I'm going to go over here and mess with somebody else. When Satan shows up in his ugly ways, does he back off because he knows nothing is going to happen here? That he has no power? Or does he have his way with you. Are you formidable? Do you cause the enemies to tremble? 
the way the city of Jerusalem caused their enemies to tremble. Look at verse 4. It says, they came on together. That's the kings. They, they gathered up, right? One king was like, there's no way I got this. So what the one king would do is go grab all his buddies. He's like, hey, we're going to go conquer Israel or Jerusalem today. And so they go out, and they, they come, and they have all their armies, and all the kings show up, and they get there, and they're like, we don't got this, guys. We don't got this. Right? And they don't. Because the city is formidable. Is your heart formidable? Is your mind formidable? For formidable. Have you been renewed in your mind in such a way that when temptation comes to you, it flees instead of you giving in? My guess is no. Are we a formidable people? Here's another one. How about when we're all together? There is no time that Christ is living in our hearts better than when we are living together, right? Because I can't contain all of Christ in my heart. My heart is way too small. And so when we're all together, right, when we are the church, Christ is more fully present living in us than he is living in me. Amen? Are we a formidable people? When Satan thinks about this church and what we are doing in the valley, does Satan tremble? Or does he think, I've got this? Are we a formidable people? As we go out on mission, as we knock on doors, as we replant churches in Los Animas, and maybe next in Rocky Ford or Fowler, or Hasty, or any number of other places. Who knows? People think we're nuts. Okay? Because they don't see it. But we do. We see that God is working. And we become formidable, not because of us, but because of him dwelling in us. Verses 7 through 8, we see a promise. This is a promise that comes to those who, for whom Christ is dwelling in us. It says, as we have heard and so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Friends, if Christ lives in us, has made his home in us, he establishes us forever. We're given eternal life that can't be taken away. There is nothing on this earth that can steal us away from the love of God. Romans 8. Nothing. He establishes us forever in him. That should give us at least some small amount of courage. <laughs> right? That should give us at least some small amount of desire to go be formidable all around us. And if our friends or our coworkers or our family members are like, yeah, you're, you know, what does that matter? We're established forever. If, if our enemies come and attack us, what does that matter for? He has established us forever. Next up, what we see in verses 9 through 11 is that those for whom God dwells, with whom, when he lives with us and in us, we are brought to worship. Verses 9 through 11, it says, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. What we see in this little paragraph here is that those who, for whom God is, is living with and in 
are brought to worship. Stephen talked about this last week. He's going to be preaching on that in Los Animas in just like an hour. And I don't know if you guys noticed something about Stephen last week as he brought that message. But he got a voice and joy. And he got loud. He was praising Jesus last week. And we all know Stephen. He struggles with that. He's quiet, right? He doesn't throw himself out there like I do. And that's okay. It's his own heart, his own way as he works through that. But when God lives in us, there are going to be moments when we are going to be brought to that even though we weren't expecting it. Because that's what we do. Because there's joy. Next up, as we work through this, what I want us to see is that for those whom God dwells in, we are safe in God. Okay, I'm going to say it again because that's a long one. For those whom God dwells in, we are are safe in God. That's powerful when you really think about it. Because how could a sinner like me be safe in the presence of God? I can't be apart from him. Here's what it says. I love this, the image here. We're looking at verse 12. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation, and this is the verse line in verse 14, that this is God. All right, so what it says is, hey, look, walk around the city. Count the towers, the, 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 the citadels, right? count everything. Take it all in. Walk around, explore everything. And then it says, oh, and by the way, you're not just walking around the city of Jerusalem. You're walking around God. Now, I've been in some cities in this country that were kind of scary to walk around in. Now, I know we're, most of us are kind of a small town people, so that shouldn't surprise you. Um, but I have walked around some pretty rough neighborhoods in Philadelphia where the police won't walk. I've walked around San Francisco. I've walked around a number of places, and I will tell you that I did not feel safe. Why? Because it wasn't my city. It wasn't my town. It wasn't where I was from. Everything was new. Everything was different. But if God dwells in us, we get to walk around. We get to be with him, and it's safe. And sinners like you and I are forgiven in such a way that our sin is wiped clean and washed away. We become new. Otherwise, we would not be safe with God. Finally, I want to land on this last small point. In verse 13 and 14, again, where we're looking, it says, hey, look, walk around the city. And then at the end of verse 13, it says, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. People for whom God dwells in them are people who tell the next generation. They are. There's no debate in this. Because when God lives in us, how can we not open our mouths and shout it from the mountaintops and through the streets that God is real and that God loves us and that he's, he's offering a chance to life? We tell it to our kids, the next generation. Well, some of you don't have kids. 
there's still another generation that needs to hear. Whether it's my kids that you get to share that with, or whether it's um, Joe on the street who doesn't know the gospel yet, he becomes the next generation. People for whom God dwells in are people who speak of the goodness of God. They tell everyone they see they need to. This language here that this is God is telling us that it's not just the city, right? It's, it's, it's not just this fortress in the city where God lives. But what has happened in the streets of Jerusalem is that because God is their fortress, because of that, he has spread throughout the whole city. There's no part of Jerusalem untouched by God. And that's the same way that our lives should be as well. You can't contain God in a vessel. You can't put God in a room and say, hey, buddy, stay there. You can't put him in a building in the middle of the city and expect he's going to just sit there and do nothing. When God comes in, God seeps out. When God comes into your life, he seeps out to those around you, but he also seeps out into every part of our lives. And so God sends his Holy Spirit into us, and when he does that, most of us are fully willing. We love the idea of Christ in us, of Christ being with us, the Holy Spirit empowering us. We love that, but only so far. And so what we do is, is we take him and we try to put him in a box in our hearts, and we try to leave him out of our hands, or our minds, or our feet, or our blood vessels, right? We try to leave him out. We want to leave him out so that we can keep doing whatever it was that we were doing before, and we can have him and everything else too. But I promise you what happens when, when Christ comes in is he seeps out. And before long, you start feeling conviction. You start feeling the... the, the the realization that there is sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. You start working through that stuff. And he calls us that we might entirely become vessels for him. Not just part of us, not just some of us. Friends, I don't know where you are today in faith. I don't know where you are in the Lord. My prayer for you is that God would be your fortress your first line of defense. If he's not right now, if you have not asked him to live in you, to save you, to rescue you, today is the day. And if you need to come talk to me or someone else today before you leave here today to do that, to have those conversations and to be found in him, please do. Or if it's later this week, I'd love to get coffee with you and sit down and talk about what it looks like for God to be living in you your fortress. Would you all pray with me? God, as we are found in you today, Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray if there are those here who don't know yet, Lord, that your spirit would lead them to a conversation with me or someone else, to, or even just with you, Lord, to receive salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we come into the time of communion, if there is sin in our lives that we need to lay down, Lord, that we would do that as we pick up and remember that, that you have wiped away those sins in our lives. God, we love you and we praise you and we give you this day in our lives. 
Amen.